Lamar. Winning lottery numbers coming up. I'm gonna switch it up for y'all a little bit. Get crunk. You know why? Huh? It's hurricane season. The new Miami. The new Miami. The new Miami. Surge, surge. The new Miami. The new Miami. The new Miami. All right, welcome back to the Wide Right Podcast. I'm Manny Navarro, Miami Hurricanes beat writer. And uh, obviously a lot has changed in the college football landscape here in the last uh, 24 to 48 hours. And we wanted to bring on Nicole Auerbeck, our national college football writer. She's broken a lot of news on the uh, Big Ten, Pac-12 front and, and been at the forefront. You've seen her probably in do about a thousand interviews in the last 40 hours. Where, where were you, uh, Nicole? How many different uh, stations have you been on here in terms of national outlets? Um, I did CNN, MSNBC, the Today Show, but honestly, nothing as important as Wide Right. So Absolutely. That's why you came on. You agreed. Even though we're like the, probably the 45th interview you've done in the last 48 hours, I mean, Num- we're still number, number one. Number one. Number one in my heart. <laughs> So let's get right into it. Um, everybody, I think, is sort of shocked, uh, or maybe not shocked is the right word, but surprised that uh, the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 is sort of held tight here a little bit. Um, what's your reaction to to the fallout? Did you think that they were going to all fall like dominoes, or did you, were you expecting this? Were you expecting the ACC and SEC and Big 12 to hold tight? Yeah, I think I was expecting for some time now that the Big 10 and the Pac-12 would get to this decision and that they could potentially do it together on a similar time frame, which obviously they did. Um, I think beyond that, it was uncertain. I think it's still possible that all three remaining leagues eventually get to the same decision. But I don't think anyone thought just because the Big Ten, the Pac-12 did this on Tuesday, everyone else would shut down on Wednesday, right? I mean, you've had different messaging come out of different conferences, preaching of patience, concerns or questions regarding athletes starting training camp. What does that mean if you're blocking and tackling? What does it mean in terms of the spread within a roster? What does it mean when you have tens of thousands of students back on campus? What does that do for the spread and potential outbreak in these communities? What does that mean for testing, turnaround times, the 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 pressure on the local healthcare system, all of these things we didn't know about because you hadn't had training camp and you didn't have regular students back on campus. So to get to the point where you have that information, you're going to need a little more time. And that's something that Greg Sankey in the SEC and Bob Bowlesby in the Big 12 have said. They have wanted to have those data points. So that could mean another couple of weeks here of weighing the information and the data and tracking the emerging medical advice. It was another bad day here in South Florida, by the way, with COVID. I think uh, the death numbers and, and, and total cases, I think, went up by 4,000. And then the death was another 200 or something. And so right here in Manny Diaz's backyard, things have, have sort of fluctuated. Um, but today was a bad day. So you always worry, okay, how many bad days in a row is it going to take where Miami and the ACC sort of say, okay, we, we, we've got to stop this. But we don't know the answer to that, right? I mean, this is just, if we go day to day. And that's really what Manny Diaz talked about yesterday when, when he got on the Zoom call with the, the local media and, and some national reporters is he's trying to coach this day by day, week by week. And I guess my question to you, Nicole, is how's everybody else doing it? I mean, how are people sort of still continuing to practice? What have you heard I mean, is everybody like, okay, let's let's see, do they answer the phone at 10 o'clock in the morning? Are we practicing today? Oh, yeah, we're still playing. Is that how it kind of works? I mean, is it that wacky? It feels like these, 
you know, decisions fluctuate and, and people's level of confidence fluctuate. I think in different parts of the country, you know, you do have different restrictions. I mean, USC and UCLA basically like couldn't work out until last week. Um, they got restrictions put in place and they were having trouble being in the weight room, right? So there are definitely different rules that people are playing by, even within the ACC. I mean, BC and Syracuse are in a totally different environment of what's allowed and what's not. Um, there's also travel restrictions in place for for those schools in their states that could potentially come into play here if they're not able to get exemptions and they're supposed to do 14-day quarantines after they would be traveling from North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, right? Going to need to do that in league play. So there's a lot of different pieces to this that, that do change almost on a daily basis. Even things like the travel restrictions, those lists are updated sometimes daily, sometimes weekly. So what people are allowed to do if people are rolling back restrictions, re-adding them, that is changing so fast. And so it does impact, you know, what does practice look like? Can you do things? Even the Big Ten over the weekend before they have fully pulled the plug, they paused their level of workouts and didn't let them do pads, didn't want them doing full contact that could change at any point too, right? You know, these leagues and their medical groups could pull back what they're allowing programs to do. Um, so it's going to be really fascinating to see how this plays out. I feel like every time I speak to someone, you know, including in the ACC, they're always like, okay, this is how I feel at this exact moment in time. And I reserve the right to change my level of confidence tomorrow or in an hour from now, right? Like it's all a snapshot in time. So it is very hard to plan and even to predict things that are the next day or two days later with any real certainty. Yeah, it, it is very, very wacky. I'll tell you this, Manny Diaz, uh, Dr. Julio Frank, who's the school president at Miami, who's a uh, former minister of health in Mexico, they have a confidence when they talk. And I don't know if it's just a salesman's job or they really, truly believe this in their heart, but they feel like they can get this done. The kids are going to wear their masks. They're going to be responsible. Classes start um, this coming Monday at Miami, but they've already welcomed back students to campus. Obviously not the full throttle. Um, they're, they're coming back with a percentage of students. Um, but they, they really do believe that this can be accomplished. I mean, are you encountering that in other places or is there a lot of skepticism, in particular in the SEC and ACC? Because obviously they have their own set of doctors that they go to that have convinced them this can be done. But do they truly believe it or is it like a cautious optimism? What would you? How would you best describe it? Because I, I really think Manny Diaz and Julio Frank believe this can be done. I think there is certain levels of optimism that echo that within the league. Um, you know, I was I was speaking with an ACC source on Tuesday, and they felt that things were trending in the right direction in the ACC, and that the information that they were getting from the medical group um, made them believe that this can work, right? So I think what's important with the three leagues that are continuing onward of the Power Five is they're going to have to justify and be very transparent about the advice that they're getting and their protocols so that they are making it clear that they believe it's safe enough to continue. And what's frustrating about this from a coach and player standpoint is that in the Big Ten and the Pac-12, you had so many coaches and players doing all the right things. And like you're describing in, in Manny's confidence with, with his program, the problem is you can't control everybody else. You know, when you're going to add tens of thousands of students back, the football team can be following all the protocols, can go straight home. You know, maybe they're not even showering at the facility. They're socially distancing the locker room and all of these things. 
But the second they walk out that facility, someone who is, let's say, unchecked or doesn't know that they're carrying the virus or is going to go to a bar or a party, those are the people they're interacting with. And that's the problem. And so it's tough because I think that was one of the hardest things for all the athletes that were crushed on Tuesday is they've done everything they possibly could. But there are so many factors outside of the control of their individual actions that are going to make some of these decisions for them. And it's it's really frustrating. You've written a lot of stories on this um, in terms of the, the effects of financial side of things. And, and obviously the Big Ten and Pac-12 said they want to come back in the spring. We don't know, right, if, if it's going to happen in the spring. But my, my question to you is, can they financially survive this? Can Can these Power Five schools in your mind – if football is postponed for everybody here in the fall and they come back in the spring and it's still not right, what are going to be sort of the financial ramifications for college football in your mind? The, the financial ramifications are going to be huge no matter what. I mean, I think you've seen some athletic directors estimate potentially up to $100 million of lost revenue without a fall season. Um, and I don't know if that can be offset by a spring season and what revenue could be recouped. But people are going to be making – Hard decisions. Barry Alvarez, the Wisconsin athletic director yesterday, was saying how there's going to be layoffs. There's going to be furloughs. There's going to be pay cuts. Like, all of these things are going to have to happen. They have modeled out all of the financial models, best case scenario, worst case scenario, X amount of games, X amount of stadium capacity. Um, If they can get some semblance of a spring season and you can, you know, get people to broadcast it and get some of that media revenue in, that would make a difference. That would help. Um, but I think, because I think, again, the absolute worst case scenario is no college football for the entire academic year. So we'll see. I mean, you know, there there's hope that there is a way to make spring work. There's hope that there will be rapid testing that is accurate. You could go take a test, a saliva test, get a result an hour later and be good to practice that day, right? Like get to that point and... Maybe you can have people in the stands. You can bring in ticket revenue. All of these things, right? Because we're talking about months from now. Nothing is guaranteed. But when you talk about the hope of doing this in the spring, those are pieces of that. The financial hope as well about some of this money you can recoup. I know we we hit the 10-minute mark, so I want to let you go. But I got one more I'm going to sneak in. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to squeeze this out of you since we're your favorite uh, podcast. Um, Scholarships. What are you hearing in regards to that and and you know, what they do with the 85 rule and all that. Is there anything you can you can tell us? So we don't know yet. Um, on Wednesday, the Division One Council is meeting to start working through a lot of these issues. Um, I mean, schools are not pulling scholarships from athletes. Like Ohio State, when they announced this on Tuesday, made it very clear that, like, their athletes are still going to have access to all the resources, testing, protocols, mental health resources, everything that they would normally have had if the season was moving forward. So you're still going to have all of those pieces, but the Division One Council is going to need to start figuring out things like eligibility extensions, like the spring sport athletes got an extra year of eligibility back, but they didn't necessarily get guarantees about their financial aid. Um, you could see something like that come about, but there are other, absolutely other elements about the size of the roster they're going to have to determine. What about early enrollees? There's there's so many other wrinkles that need to be decided, and especially if you try to play a couple leagues try to play in the fall and a couple play in the spring, it gets even messier. So we'll start to get some clarity on that, um, you know, hopefully later on Wednesday, but maybe not for another week. Um, this might be a slow rollout. We know the bureaucracy in the NCAA. 
So we'll see. But those are all the big questions. Coaches are wondering. Players are wondering. Athletic directors, everybody is, because these things were not decided until the decisions to postpone the fall season were made. So no one worked ahead on this, which is also a problem, and that's led to some frustrations as well. But scholarships, eligibility, roster size, recruiting, those are the big, big, big questions moving forward. We're just winging it, baby, day by day, winging it. Nicole, you're not working hard enough. Go do, go do some more <laughs> interviews. Keep, keep working. I, I don't see you. You know, you look great. The eyes. You know, I don't see any patches underneath the eyes. You, you were like, you're still, you're hanging tough, man. I thank you for saying that. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of concealer and a lot of makeup on, so I appreciate that. <laughs> you're the best. Thank you so much. All right, anytime. Before we get back to the show, let's take a minute to hear about Indochino. All right. Uh, many thanks to Nicole Auerbach for uh, joining us to talk about the state of college football. Now we're going to transition to the next segment, which is bringing in my wingman, Kelvin Harris, former Hurricane, three-time national champion, to talk about what's been going on on the football side of things so far in camp. And Kelvin, um, we've had five practices as uh, we're recording this here around 12 o'clock on Wednesday. And Miami's going to practice again tonight around 6 o'clock. But we've been able to talk to a few assistant coaches. We had Rhett Lashley. We had Blake Baker. We've obviously gotten to talk to Manny Diaz twice. Um, we had um, the wide receivers coach. We had the D-line coach, Todd Stroud. We've had a lot of guys uh, available to us here in the early going. I know you read up on your canes and you read up on what we've been writing at The Athletic and other places. What's grabbed you so far from the first five days of camp from a overall team perspective? The focus, I mean, this just feels different than other years for us. And everybody seems to be in sync. And it's like, they're like, I guess they're like a cage dog. They've been back into a corner. They're, you know, I guess they're, they're tired of the disrespect. And with all this adversity, it's pulled the team closer. I mean, we got a legitimate leader at quarterback. We got some hungry guys at receiver, and even though we lost Russo, we got it. It, it opened up uh, even more hunger at our, our deepest position, which was defensive end. And then you got young linebackers, uh, secondary. It just it just feels if uh, Manny pulls this off, he deserves a raise because I really like to focus on the you know other kids and the program. Let's just hope we get a chance to go to Clemson, South Carolina, and put our foot in their ass. <laughs> well, Miami fans would certainly love to see that, assuming that uh, the schedule stays as is and there's no uh, delays or changes to it, um, that that Clemson game takes place the fourth week of the season. We'll see. But as far as what I've seen from camp early on, I, w- I wanted to get some of your reaction and, and, and provide some thoughts on my own. Let's just go position by position. Derek King – um, you know, we got a chance to talk to him early here in camp, get his thoughts on kind of what's been going on. And, you know, what, what grabbed me about him is his relationships with the receivers. I, that's the question I asked him on the uh, on the Zoom call when we had him the other day. Who are the guys that you have the most chemistry with? And it's pretty clear that early on he's throwing the ball a ton to the veterans, you know, the Mike Harleys, the D. Wiggins, the Mark Popes, and, and of course, uh, Brevin Jordan and Will Mallory, the two tight ends. And, um, you know, while the freshmen certainly were impressive early on in camp, Rob Lykin said yesterday that, you know, they're still freshmen. They're only eight practices in. And when he was asked specifically how well they're grasping the playbook and understanding things, um, 
he said, look, it's it's eight practices between the spring and, and what's happened so far. And you got to give those times, those kids a little bit of time. He says he's worried that maybe you'll see some guys break left when they should break right. Um, but he's got a lot of confidence in, in the talent and the athleticism that those freshman receivers have. So I guess from, from starting off from that perspective, from an offensive standpoint and, and the change in scheme and the change in, in, in what we've uh, what this team is going to be doing. It's obviously a smaller playbook. It's less complicated than what Dan Enos ran. But still, the coaches are saying the, the freshmen still need a little bit of time to adjust. Are you concerned at all that, you know, that it's not as easy as maybe they were making it out to be in the spring where, you know, they were laughing at, at how simple the offense is? Or do you think by the time the season actually rolls around, they will be experts at what they're doing? Yeah, they'll be all right. I mean, even though it's simple offense, there's still a lot of uh, – um, nuances because they just saw basic defenses those first four practices. They really didn't get into it, but even even though the offense is simple, the defenses aren't, you know, in most cases. They got all kinds of switch coverages and passes, and I don't know if he's teaching them how to read uh, read read the coverage because you can re- you can read the coverage at wide out, you know, between the corner safety and the and the, and, and the linebacker to your side, as we call it a triangle, you can you know. I don't know if he's got to that point where his team might do that, or if they even out of that. And you know, sometimes even in simple offense, you got options, voice routes, of you know, option routes. So I mean, in four days, you just want them to learn the route tree and good at and catch a ball to the end home. And then as you get into camp, you get to, you know, you get into more nuances. But the guy I'm interested in, say, the true freshman is redshirt freshman Jeremiah Payton because I expect him to be the breakout guy. If there, you know, if there's a season, he's going to be the guy that I think is going to be the breakout guy. Yeah, he's the guy that I think I ident- identified during the spring as, as being the, the guy who, who could come out of nowhere, quote-unquote nowhere, and surprise people. One thing Rob Lycan said about him is uh, that his talent level is good as anybody that he's ever coached. And obviously he's coached a, co- a few first-rounders in his time in this business. Um, but Jeremiah, the one thing he did say that to me raises a little bit of a question is, look, uh, this guy's got to put it all together. And every- anytime I hear a coach – sort of say that, you know, that, you know, there was, he was kind of sort of out, uh, kind of out of sorts a little bit last year, according to what Rob Lycan said, it always raises a red flag in my head. Cause I'm like, okay, well, why is the coach mentioning that? He's clearly trying to get the kid to maybe be more focused or, or, um, who are you, you know, talking sort of about? Out of sorts. He broke up there. Rob, Rob, Rob Lycan said that about Jeremiah Payton. He said that, uh, you know, while he's a, he's a talented kid, um, he's just got to put it all together. He said he was kind of out of sorts a little bit last year. Um, you know, and he needs well, to start he progressing towards his talent level. I think he was out of sorts because I think this is just me looking from afar. I think he felt like he should have been playing more, and mm-hmm. for whatever reason he didn't play. So, and then he was a true freshman. I mean, every true freshman goes through uh, that roller coaster during your first year, and in his situation, he probably thought, hey, man, these dudes ain't better than me. But for whatever reason, and I think a lot of it might have had to do with the playbook, um, he didn't play as much as they thought. And then, you know, it got to be a point where they were trying to save him. You know, they're like, well, we don't necessarily need him. And they really didn't. 
they just had some underperformances by guys. Hopefully we don't have those this year. But no, this year he got to step up. You know, you got to go grab it. It's out there to be taken. You got to go get it. Lichen said that he thinks there'll be probably between five to six receivers who who get into the rotation. And, and then, you know, obviously um, you have the three main guys, right, the three veterans that I mentioned earlier. But then you have Peyton, um, and then you have the freshmen after that. Those are your receivers. You have Marshall Few also, the former, former walk-on who's been put on scholarship in the past. Um, those are your nine, you know, quote-unquote scholarship receivers. Um, but he said of the four freshmen, the guys who were furthest ahead – I guess are Keyshawn Smith and Xavier uh, Restrepo. Restrepo is a guy right now who's playing in the slot along with Harley, along with Marshall Few. One thing he said about Restrepo that I thought was really, really encouraging is, is how, you know, you talk about reading the coverages. Um, Likens talked about, you know, how really if you're playing in the inside, you got to understand where the linebackers uh, are, what they're trying to do. You know, they're taking routes away. Who should I stem? And he said he's the kid that's just real savvy, knows the def- defensive structure. Um, and he said his uh, his IQ is basically well above average for his age. So I think if you look at any of the freshmen who could see immediate playing time or be a part of that um, rotation, to me it's got to be Restrepo. I think Keyshawn Smith is probably a tick behind him. And then you got Daz Worsham and Michael Redding. And Michael Redding, by the way, who already missed the spring with an injury, Likens mentioned how he's yet to really see him this fall. So I don't know what's going on with Michael Redding. That's probably something I got to dig my teeth into a little bit here to see what's going on with him. I know that he was doing some work in the offseason. I saw film and video of him, but I found it interesting that Likens said that he's yet to really see um, Michael Redding, which makes me wonder if he's still dealing with an injury. It's, of course, something that they won't tell us. We have to dig into and find out. But uh, but anyway, that's the receiver position. Um, you know, for the rest of the offense, obviously we had Garen Justice uh, talk to us for a while. He broke down the offensive line. It's really looking a lot like what we talked about on this show and what I've reported in the past for The Athletic, which is, you know, Jared Williams is in there at right tackle with, with Kylie on Herbert. John Campbell continues to be the lead guy at left tackle. And then the biggest position battle, it seems, is left guard where you've got uh, Usman Treor, Ja'Kai Clark, and now Zion Nelson getting a few snaps there in practice. Zion Nelson, by the way, up to 312. Remember when he was 240? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's really put on a lot of weight. And really, I think if you're a Miami fan, what you're seeing now is this thing really come to fruition in terms of, okay, these guys are growing up. They're putting on weight. They're getting older, more experienced. And, and Ja'Kai Clark, while he was a 12-game starter last year, it really seems to me that unless he's able to beat out Usman Treor for, for the left uh, – guard spot he's probably just going to be the backup center to Corey Gaynor and use maybe potentially use his year as a redshirt if they don't need him so um, from a team perspective uh, it looks like the offensive line is in much better shape and and then Jalen Rivers the two freshmen that they got Jalen Rivers Isaiah Walker on that front Um, Isaiah Walker has until September I guess 11th to get uh, his waiver from the NCAA to play this year but again not a guy that needs to play and then um, Jalen Rivers is playing sort of guard and tackle. I think they had him at guard in the spring. I think he's now probably taking some snaps at tackle. But he's a guy that they feel really good about as far as the future is concerned. So, you know, um, Calvin, when, you, when you've heard from when, what Garen Justice talked about the other day, um, it has to feel good, right, from an offensive line perspective that things are proceeding in the right manner. Yeah, we got youth, depth, and talent. I think Jared Williams – 
solidifies us as a national title contender because we have a solid offensive line. We got a we got a prospect at right tackle, and a, at some point Campbell will be a pro prospect at left tackle, and then you got three, four guys coming back with starting experience inside. You got Swiss Army Knife, Mr. Dependable, DJ Scaff at right guard. You got Corey Gaynor, who's as solid as a rocket center. But let's not forget, Ja'Kai Clark did start 12 games mostly at right guard. Now he's learning left guard. He's going to be the, he's gonna be the, the swing man, be able to play. Because like in the pros on, on, on game day, you only usually have seven to eight guys eligible. So somebody has to be able to play all three inside positions. And somebody's got to be the jack guy who can play both tackle positions. And what happens here is he's that guy. But let's not forget depending on how the red shirt rules go, Nervon Dawson is going to come back into this equation. So you got a guy that started, what, shit, 30-some-odd games who mm-hmm. we're not even factoring in because he's hurt. But at some point, if there is a season, he will be a factor. So you got a lot of starts coming back. And I think Trier is going to probably beat out Clark for that spot because he was doing good last year in practice. And I heard he did pretty good in the spring, and he's looked at so far. So if you look at it, week one, I would say our two swing guys would be Zion and Ja'Kai, true sophomore. And I think Jalen Rivers would, would be somewhere on the second team. He could actually swing guard to tackle. They'll probably keep him on the right side. And then you don't need Isaiah Walker. Just let him you know, marinate for a year. You still got uh, Al Kamal. You can take uh, Chris Washington and put him on the back burner. You still got number 57. And then it's <laughs> – I love the fact got, you still don't say their names. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, you know, 75 will be good for, you know, practice. Him and the Moose guy and the uh, the other guy who came on scholarship. So you got depth for practice. You got, um, you got depth for the game. And I think that's going to be the difference is the O line and the D line on this team. Right. By the way, I, I I didn't hear Cleveland Reed's name mentioned the other day. Nobody even mentioned that kid. I don't know how he's doing. What you're hearing about him behind the scenes? Is he still on the team or did he leave again? What's the deal? I'm on the team. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Yeah, the, the, his, his name didn't even come talent. up. I guess so. he's you know still got a ways to go, but you know he should be all right. I mean, hey, if you're him, you're not trying to leave. There's no place. There's not a lot of places to go. Right, right. Well, although although I would say there's probably teams looking for uh, offensive linemen. There's always teams looking for offensive linemen. He's a redshirt sophomore, but you'd have to sit out if he transferred. So um, that's that's just the deal. Um, that's the offensive line. Let's switch over to defense. Obviously, the big news was uh, Gregory Rousseau leaving the team. Uh, we you know we we did our podcast probably a few hours before that that story broke. Our last one. And, um, you know, obviously Miami's defensive end position is, is very loaded with talent and depth. And I don't think it's a position that they have to worry about much right now because they've got Jalen Phillips. They've got Quincy Roche. Um, they've got uh, Jafari Harvey and, and a bunch of other guys. Um, Todd, Todd yeah. Stroud talked yesterday um, about kind of what's been going on with the rotation there um, a little bit. And, and Chance Williams has, has really come back big and strong uh, i think he was 261 now he's down to 255 that the freshman uh recruit 
And ultimately, I think they moved Blissett back inside uh, Jason Blissett, the talented four-star uh, recruit from a year ago who was starting out a defensive tackle, then moved out to end in the spring. So they feel confident enough where really they like the four potential guys that they could have there. That, that fourth and fifth guy still have to sort of be established after camp. But the first three with Harvey, Roche, and, and, and Jalen Phillips, who's an absolute freak, they feel really good about that group. Yeah, and then, you know, the Chance with the uh, Cam Williams guy probably before him and Chance Williams to fight it out. And then you got, uh, was it Quentin Williams? What's his name? Yeah, Quentin, you have Quentin Williams, and you have, yeah, we got a lot of Williamses on this team. We're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to, like, come up with nicknames for these guys. Um, yeah, we're going to call him Q. We're going to just call him Q, right. Um, he's, he's, he's in there. You have Elijah Roberts, the other freshman, uh, arrival defensive lineman. Um, He's, you know, I think he is kind of a, a back and forth guy who could play end or tackle because of his size. And I think as he gets older and puts more weight on, he'll probably be a tackle, but we'll see. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I, the defensive tackle position, the one thing that was notable to me was that John Ford came in pretty heavy. Um, I think he came in like at 334. So, you know, you, you talk about what happens in an offseason, right? What happens in a pandemic? And it's it's obvious that some guys are going to watch what they're eating and, and continue to work out. And then other guys, they're going to, you know, get on the Xbox and start playing. And John Ford, um, for whatever reason, came back a little too heavy. And they got him down, I think, from 334 down to 322 at the start of camp. And they, they think he's going to play at 315. But again, those type of things to me speak to discipline and player effort. And if John Ford wants to be drafted, which I know he does, I know from talking to his brother and people in his family, um, that there's a desperation and need to get out of uh, a rough neighborhood and, and some tough financial situations. You got to come back motivated and at your best. But again, this is a year where the kids are dealing with a pandemic. Are we going to play this year? What's going to happen? There's you know a lot of different things that happen. And the good news is John Ford is focused. He's doing what he has to do. He's the one returning starter at defensive tackle that Miami has, and uh, and he's got motivation. There's guys behind him, right? Jordan Miller. Uh, Nessa Silvera, guys that are hungry that want that playing time as well as those freshmen. So, um, but I, but that was notable to hear that that Ford came back at three thirty four. Yeah. Well, I was just saying that it's going to be interesting because you got Ford. I don't mind him being three, you know, three twenty something. Um, you need a hammer. He's a run stuffer. That's what he is. Mm -hmm. He needs to embrace that. Then you got Jordan Miller. I'm interested to see how he's doing, how big, how much he weighs. Um. And then Nesta, so you got a nice three-man rotation. But then you the Dancing Bear, Harrison Hunt, and Blissett. So you're six deep at defensive tackle. Right. I mean, I heard the Dancing Bear was pretty nice. The Dancing Bear is Jalar Holly, by the way, uh, for, for the people listening at home in case they don't get the reference. No, he's the Dancing Bear. Yes, he's the Dancing Bear. Um, yeah, so I think defensive line, while it, it sucks, obviously, you lose Rousseau and, and – Look, he had every reason to, to want out, right? His mom's a nurse uh, at a, one of the hospitals here in Broward and, and in the intensive care unit. She's seen a lot of young people in their 30s and 40s die from this COVID-19. And she looks at her son and says, six, you know, seven, 265 pounds. He's a big guy. She worries for him. And and she just she convinced him to sit out. He's going to be a first-round pick. And, and I think anybody who questions that to me is kind of silly to agree or disagree. No, I mean, you know, you know, from you know what what you what you were talking about, I guess uh, me and you off offline is that she's been pretty 
steadfast about this ever since what March maybe. Right. I think it was really uh, according to Marvin Rousseau, who, who's uh, uh, Greg's brother. And, and and I did by the way, I did talk to to Greg on DM through Twitter. We did talk for a little while about what kind of what was going on with him. But um, from talking to Marvin. I guess once the numbers in South Florida started to spike um, again, you know, kind of go up where the death rates are really high and, and, and all that, which was sort of, you know, June, July-ish, I think that's when she started to really freak out and be like, look, you're, you don't need to prove anything. You can be a first-round pick. Do, go do a good combine and, and, and stay safe. That matters to me more than, you know, the potential to, to get COVID-19 and who knows what kind of heart issues. I mean, that's really – the reason the Big Ten and, and uh, um, the Pac-12 are, are pulling out of this. That's part of the reason why, anyway. What, what they've cited is the, the mycordial heart, heart conditions um, that, that result in COVID patients. So I think his mom, knowing doctors, being in the medical field, hearing those type of stories, that, that's why she raised that concern. So it was really more like June, July when the numbers in South Florida spiked. Well, I mean, she's on the front lines. And so, I, listen, I think he's one of the top – three or four character guys that ever played at the University of Miami. And you, you've never heard anybody say anything bad about him. I just, I was just amazed at how much he improved over the course of the season and, and really in just like four or five games. And so I just think the upside with him is incredible. But hey, man, the Phillips kid is a freak too. So, yeah, you know, the Phillips kid yesterday, Stroud has coached Mario Williams and a bunch of great defensive linemen uh, over the years at different places, Florida State, Miami, NC State and and Akron, other places where he's been. He's been a lot of different places. And Stroud, uh, Coach Todd Stroud yesterday said that Jalen Phillips is athletic, a guy he's ever coached. You know, he said he's in the 99th percentile. And uh, that he's 270 pounds right now and runs like a safety. And and it's true. I mean, Jalen Phillips, I guess, was tracked running 22 miles an hour um, in 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 their little you know off season conditioning when they get him on the fast treadmill and then also when they were out on the field. And so, um, and I think was it Mike Harley said the other day he's running in 24 miles an hour. So you you have a kid that Mike Harley is a slot receiver. Running 24 miles an hour, and you got Jalen Phillips running 22 miles an hour, who's 270 pounds and probably 80 pounds heavier than Mike Harley. So I, I just – the guy is a physical freak. He can do a backflip, a standing backflip, according to um, to Miami's uh, defensive coordinator, Blake Baker. He's just a freak. And and so I, I think, look, from a, from a talent standpoint, there's not a drop-off at the, at the defensive end position at all. No, and he's probably a more defined pass rusher. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So you're talking about a kid who has top 10 talent. Yep. Mike Zimmerman, are you there? I'm wondering, are you there? I wanted to ask you a question because you are the ultimate Canes fan. and uh, hey, I am here. You are there. Um, Mike, What? anything from a football perspective that's intrigued you? Because I know right now we're all down. We're all thinking football might end and, and – there's a lot of people out there who are worried that the ACC is going to cancel eventually along with the SEC. But from a football perspective, have you been able to focus on anything? Is there anything that's caught your eye that you want to talk about? I mean, nothing's that that's really caught my eye. Um, more so questions about how quickly the offense has picked up Rhett Lashley's scheme and, and playbook. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, that that's the biggest thing because the defense really hasn't changed. 
it's more about it's it's really more about the offense for this upcoming season. That's that was the huge problem last year. Manny adjusted it in the offseason, and now we're wondering if if that was the problem. So I think that's that's the big question mark going into camp. And I guess just curious on how that's going, how how quickly the these kids are picking it up, and and if it's going smoothly. Yeah, we we talked about that a little bit earlier, Calvin and I did, and. I, again, I think as Rob Likens mentioned, it's been eight, eight, nine practice days that they've had. And, you know, there's a lot less to learn in terms of the playbook and scheme and, and what, uh, you know, compared to what they ran with Dan Enos. But again, as Rob Likens said, these guys are going to get on the field and they have to make mistakes. And I think as long as they've got it down by three, week three, week four, where you're, those mistakes are being limited. Um, and, and you can put six receivers out there with confidence because you're running that hurry-up style, and you're obviously going to have to have some guys that come off the field. You can't just play the same three guys for 100 plays in a game. Um, you know, As long as they, they, they start to get it by week three, week four, I think they'll be fine. Um, and, and it's sure to me sounds like Xavier Restrepo and um, Keyshawn Smith, two talented freshmen, as well as Jeremiah Payton. Those are the three guys I think that, that could potentially – um, be part of that next receiver group who who get in the rotation and get some work. So uh, I think it's coming along, but again, it's so early in camp. It's after five practices. We'll have to see once maybe they scrimmage. Maybe that's something that comes up if they if they get a chance to scrimmage here uh, soon. You know that Manny Diaz and his coaching staff can address. We'll find out how they look. All right, I think that's going to wrap it up uh, for this edition. Uh, it's fun doing this wide ride podcast. I've always got to thank Kelvin Harris, who, by the way, has his own uh, podcast, the U, the U uh, Huddlecast. It's on Huddlecast, right, Kelvin? Uh, Sp- Spider Fires. The U Podcast. It's Miami Dash Huddlecast. There you go. We look it up on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcast. That's right. And Calvin's always uh, entertaining and fun. And today, I don't think we got you to say any bad words. Today, we actually kept it clean. So that was uh, that's a victory. I think we're all kind of mellowed out here that football hasn't been canceled yet. I'm sure you're saving all all of your colorful uh, uh, <laughs> language for if, if the season gets canceled. I'm sure we won't be able to, to censor you then, right? I mean, I'll try and be, you know, restrained but you know I honestly I think I was telling you this offline I have no problems with what the Pac-12 did because they were honest about it it was yeah it's a little bit about player safety but it's actually it's all about player safety but it's about the fact that they can't test in a timely manner and yeah it's a hot spot out there but if you can't test your kids like what's going on at UM and at Florida State and Clemson and Alabama and it's for whatever reason, at the southeast, the southern schools, where they're getting their test results back in 24, at worst, 48 hours, you know, then you got a problem because apparently it's taken five to seven days for them to get the test results back. So they can't play if they can't test. So I have no problem with that because not only are they not playing, but there's nobody on the California schools' campuses. So it's not like they're talking on the side of their neck like the Big, Twi- Big, Big Ten is where well, we can't play any football even though we can test and get the test results back within 24 hours. But we can send 60,000 kids to class and we ain't testing them or taking no room. or Even if you are taking temperatures, 
That's meaningless. You you got sixty thousand kids on campus, and you ain't tested none of them. Well, I, and you worried about getting sued. You worried about getting sued from the athletic department. You need to be worried about getting sued from these regular students because I guarantee you, if there's an outbreak in those dorms, and five or ten kids die or get this myocarditis because it ain't just our athletes that get it, there's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's obviously a, a, a tough issue that we can't ignore and can't uh, just sort of pass to the side. I mean, the, the, that there, there's a reason why the, the Big Ten and, and Pac-12 are doing what they're doing. And right now, the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 are in, and, and we'll see how long that lasts. But there's going to be a lot of pressure. It'll be fun to uh well i don't know if it's gonna be fun but it'll be interesting to follow what happens i don't think this is a whole lot of fun to be honest but uh you're you're right kelvin i mean it's it's scary this is gonna be a a trend it's gonna be a transcendent year because if the acc the sec and the big 12 find a way to pull this off i was listening to desmond howard talk about there's been a big 10 since the 1800s There may not be a Big Ten next year. Nah, I don't know. I think there's way too much money involved for that. But we'll see. We'll see what happens with the Power Five and NCAA football. And but listen, if if you if you if this works out, and then Alabama, and Nick Saban, and Clemson and Dabo reach out to Ohio State and Michigan and say, "Look," because let's just be honest: if you take Ohio State and Michigan out of the Big Ten, you got Conference USA. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So. And if you take Oregon and USC out of the Pac-12, you got the Mountain West. Right. So if you take those four schools out and add them to those other three conferences, you don't need the NCAA. Right. You can go cut your own deal with ESPN. And ESPN is a is a is a carnivore. They they like the NCAA, but hey, the type of money they would make with that Super League, mm-hmm. please. Yeah. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Wide Right for Calvin Harris, Mike Zimmerman, and, uh, of course, the great Nicole Auerbach who we got uh, on earlier on the show. That's going to wrap it up for this week. We'll see you next week. Surge, surge, the new Miami, the new Miami.